Well, good morning. We're going to carry on with Matthew 21 now, the uh, triumphal entry of the Lord into Jerusalem. And we'll start, as usual, with uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, as we come again to focus upon your Son this morning, we, we pray, Heavenly Father, for your guidance, that we might see him there as he was and perceive his real thinking and that his spirit might be ours. Father, we remember the words of your Apostle Paul, that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And we feel that we are his, and we wish to be his more and more. We pray, therefore, Father, that you will help us through the medium of the Gospel records to understand his Spirit and to acquire that within ourselves, that we might live and feel and be as, as he was in this world and as he is today. Lord Jesus, we realize that you are the same yesterday and today, and you ever shall be. And we, we pray, therefore, that we might know you and make you known. Amen. Well, Matthew 21, this is the uh, triumphal entry, so-called, of the Lord into Jerusalem. But I'm going to suggest all the way through that this is, in fact, a, a parody of a triumphal entry. This is not, in fact, a, a triumphal entry as people understood it. So, uh, verse uh, 1, when they were come to Bethphage, which means the house of figs, and yet, if you look at my notes, you, you'll see a reference there to how it could mean the house of unripe figs, which is very significant in what you've got later on in the cursing of the fig tree. Um, in other words, the Lord is looking for spiritual fruit in Israel, and it's simply not there. And then we have this apparently curious incident in verse 2, where the Lord needs to get a, a donkey and its foal. Uh, that would be a female donkey followed by its foal, uh, a, a young donkey. And so he apparently has quite a, an intricate kind of uh, means of getting it. And considering how condensed the gospel records are, one wonders why all this emphasis is given on how he went to all this trouble to get uh, this donkey uh, and its foal in this particular way, and why all the, the, the gospel records seem to record it. seem to spend quite a few verses, relatively speaking, on this. And the, the question is, of course, why so much emphasis uh, upon this? And... Maybe it's simply, uh, verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Uh, that was spoken in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that Israel's king, messianic king, was to come riding upon a donkey. Now, I would uh, argue, really, that the Lord was therefore consciously fulfilling uh, Bible prophecy. And the whole point of this uh, rather elaborate uh, way of getting hold of the donkey and the foal is recorded in order to show us the, ex the degree that he went to in order to fulfill Bible prophecy. Uh, this phrase that's used in verse 4, that it might be fulfilled, this is hina uh, in, in, in the Greek, and you've got this a number of times, and again, you look in my notes, you'll see about 15 times this is used to describe how the Lord consciously fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now, what's the equivalent of that in the Gospel of John? The Word was made flesh. In other words, the Lord consciously, consciously chose to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. 
Now, if you're interested in studying the Gospels, you really have to read Huddy Whitaker's book, Studies on the Gospels. And unfortunately, as I said, he, he repeatedly, in that excellent book, makes the point so many times that he obviously had a thing about it, that the Lord did not go around consciously fulfilling prophecy. But it's said time and again that he did. And I think that is the set up uh, for us, the pattern, that likewise fulfillment of prophecy involves a conscious effort from us. In the same way as, for example, when uh, 19th century Christadelphians felt that the Bible taught that the Jews were to return to the land of Israel, they started gathering money to pay for Jews to go back to Israel. Now, whether or not they interpreted the prophecy correctly is another issue. I'm simply saying that that is, to me, how we should be operating, that we should consciously seek to fulfill uh, prophecy, not just wait for it to happen. The gospel must go into all the world, and then shall the end come. Well, if you put your feet up and watch a telly, it is not actually going to happen. It all depends to some degree on us. And this consciousness of fulfillment is what I see very much here in uh, the whole way the Lord was seeking consciously, I suggest, to fulfill uh, the, the prophecy of Zechariah 9 verse 9. Now, why a donkey and a foal? And did he sit on both of them? Well, you can't sit on two of these animals. The uh, parallel records in Mark 11 and Luke 19 stress that the foal was uh, one upon which no man had ever sat. In other words, it was not broken in. So, Matthew is clear here, there was a donkey, and wandering behind it, there was this foal, and Jesus sat on the foal. Now, it was not broken in. He was the first man to have ever sat on it. So, this animal would have been uh, bucking, and it was trying to throw him, and it would have been going in a zigzag, uh, not exactly a, a sedate, uh, solemn kind of uh, procession. Why the two animals? I suggest that it is a parody here of the, the, the charger, which is supposed to go in front and pull the chariot, in which the king, is the triumphant king, is seated. And yet, this was the most non-military, non-glorious form of entry into Jerusalem that the Lord could have chosen. Now, sometime it would be good to write a little article about the influence that children's, small children's uh, Bible story books have upon us. For example, uh, the idea that the, uh, the, the, the flood and Noah's Ark, etc., that the ark was full of these kangaroos and uh, giraffes with extremely long necks, sort of happy, smiling animals putting their their long necks through these little windows on the ark, and they're sailing happily along on the, on the water. I mean, it's absolutely not the picture. It would have been a picture of fear, uh, a picture of, of utter devastation with all kind of bodies and stuff, trees floating around in the water, and certainly not smiley animals with uh, happy faces uh, sailing along. Um, and so it is, I think, with these pictures of Jesus on his donkey uh, sedately riding into Jerusalem and everybody waving the palm fronds. This is not the case. He was sitting on a young animal that is walking behind its mother, and 
the, the disciples, it's written, put their clothes on the two animals. Now, they put their clothes on them to serve as saddles. So these two animals are saddled, but there's nobody riding the, uh, the front animal. That there's nobody sitting there. There's nobody, there's no rider there. And instead of pulling a, a chariot, it's sort of got in tow this uh, rather difficult foal that doesn't want to be sat on and that's trying to buck Jesus and he's just about hanging on to the thing or, or by its neck. And, of course, the idea is that in a triumphal entry, the great proud king comes riding in on a charger, not on a donkey, let alone on a, a little animal, a little foal that's never been broken in, that's wandering uh, zigzag behind its, uh, its mother, who has got some sort of saddle made of clothes uh, on it, and no one's there. There's no one sitting on it. Now, this, as I say, is a parody of a triumphal entry. It is not a triumphal entry per se. It is a parody. It's a take on a triumphal entry. It's not actually uh, the triumphal entry. Incidentally, in Mark 11, verse 4, it says that the, the donkey was tied up at a gate at a place where two ways met. And this is the Greek word amphidon. And it's used in the, in the Septuagint, amphidon, uh, for palace. Now, Herod had a palace on the Mount of Olives, and they're right there in Bethphage and Bethany, right by the Mount of Olives. And Luke 8.3 says that the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, was called Joanna, and she was a supporter of Jesus and ministered to Jesus of her substance. And that's why Jesus says, well, if anyone says to you, what are you doing taking the animals, just say, the Lord has need of them. So whoever this person was there with the animals, they recognized that the Lord was, was Jesus. They were believers. And I just wonder if the sense of parody is made even stronger, if my little reconstruction is correct and the Lord is, right, is riding upon Herod's donkey, or a donkey that was known to belong to Herod, the, uh, the supposed king. Now, all this was done to fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah 9 verse 9, that, behold, your king comes humble and sitting upon a donkey. Now, a humble king was a contradiction in terms. In fact, it's been pointed out that in, in Greek and Aramaic, until the time of Christianity, there was really no word for humble. If you were a king, you showed off, you... you you showed your power, you showed who was boss. And yet the Lord was going to be characterized by being a humble king, that this was the supreme characteristic of, of the Lord. And his kingship was on the basis of his humility. As elsewhere we're taught, he is Lord because he was the Son of Man. So then, the Lord says in verse 3, uh, just say the Lord has need of them. And that's interesting how, in a sense, as uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, God is in need of man. Uh, and in, the, in his wisdom and the way he structured everything, that, that is kind of how it is, that God doesn't operate necessarily in a sovereign way. God is in need of man. Uh, the Lord has need of this donkey, and he shall send them. Now, send them is apostello. So then these donkeys were the sent ones, the apostles. 
And now the whole thing starts to open up. <clears throat> this difficult uh, donkey, this uh, foal that's bucking and throwing Jesus that is so inappropriate for the king to sit on, this, I believe, is really some picture of, of us, of his people. Now, as I say, the whole thing was um, a parody of a triumphal entry. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says that the humble king is to enter Zion having salvation. But that bit is missed out of the quotation that is made of Zechariah 9 here, uh, quite clearly, because this is not the final triumphal entry that is envisaged. Well, he was to come humble, uh, as I say. And if you go back to Zechariah 9, verse 9, and have a look around the context there, this humble king who enters Jerusalem sitting on a donkey and on the foal of a donkey will come in triumph and victory. Well, the triumph and victory that was in view was the victory of the Lord over sin. And his final victory was to die on the cross. This is the great paradox that in his death there was life. In his loss and his defeat, uh, this was the magnificent defeat, as has been said. Uh, this was the the victory in, in defeat. And because of that, Zechariah 9 verse 9 goes on, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the Gentiles. Now, they were expecting, the Jews were expecting, and I think the disciples also, that Jesus would enter Jerusalem as the messianic king and that he would uh, drive out the Romans, liberate Palestine, establish the temple uh, as the, the center of the, the messianic kingdom, and that he would destroy all the, the, the bow, the battle bow, the, the war horse and the chariot that was against him, and yet and against Israel. But of course the point is that the Lord enters in a, in a parody of all that, that his chariot is this bucking uh, little donkey, the foal of a donkey that's trying to, to, to throw him off, that he's having to really struggle with, and, of course, in Luke 19, it says that as he comes into Jerusalem, what does he do? Is he waving to the crowds, just like the, the, uh, the triumphant king is supposed to? Uh-uh. He bursts into tears. He bursts into tears. And there he is weeping as he comes into, in, into the city. So, their expectations were, in a sense, uh, aroused by the Lord entering in fulfillment, it seemed, of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Um, and yet, the, the point is that he's saying, look, <clears throat> my kingdom is not of this world. My, my kingdom principles are not at all as you imagine. And then he comes in, as you know, he goes in, as we read, into uh, into the temple, throws out the Jewish religious leaders, lets kids and cripples come into the sacred space uh, of the temple, condemns left, right and centre of Israel, um, and then he turns around and goes out. And where does he go? He goes into, and that's the Greek word ice, that he, he goes right into, not to, but into Bethany. What does Bethany mean? The house of the poor. I'm not saying that the home that he stayed in there, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was necessarily poor. But the point is, he went out into the house of the poor. You know, this is like a triumphant, so-called, uh, president coming into town on a, 
in a little clap-down larder that keeps backfiring and breaking down, and then he, he sort of bursts into tears as he look round, criticizes his people, and then he goes out and sleeps, uh, sleeps in a, in a, I don't know, a night shelter. The house of the poor. Now, why then was the, the first animal, the, the donkey, why did he have no rider? <clears throat> When Elijah died, they lamented over him, and this is recorded twice, that he is called the chariot of Israel and the horseman thereof. Well, it's in the plural. I suggest that that's a Hebrew intensive plural. Elijah was the great horseman of Israel, and of course the prophet, like Elijah, was John the Baptist, but he's not there. He's not there. The saddle is there, but he's conspicuous by his absence, and of course that's because they had not really responded to John's message. Well, they cut down branches. In a sense, according to the allusion there in Hebrews 11, that the branches of Israel were cut off. I mean, they were really speaking of their own condemnation and rejection. Um, And John 12, 13 says that they were palm branches. But wait a minute. Shouting out Hosanna and waving palm branches is associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. But this is not Tabernacles, this is Passover. The Lamb who was to die for for Israel. So, he's obviously set the whole thing up in order to uh, trigger their expectations, but in order to dash their expectations and to say, look, in all these things that you expected of Messiah and of his kingdom, you're wrong, this is not how it's going to be. And there they are shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now, save now. And I'm sure he's alluding to a rabbinic uh, saying, <clears throat> if Israel be worthy, Messiah comes with the clouds of heaven. If they're unworthy, he comes riding upon an ass. And I, I'm sure that he's alluding to that. And yet, as they thought about this, then, and only then, they, they got the message. Now they say, Hosanna, save now. Then they say, Hosanna in the highest. They're assuming that their picture of salvation now, and their idea of God's kingdom, and their idea of Messiah, is reflected in the highest, in, in heaven. But their view is God's view. <coughs> now, <coughs> this same crowd of people, I suggest, were very soon shouting out, not Hosanna, but crucify him. And the argument's been made that these were two different crowds, but I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> because in John 12, 13, we read that the crowd shouted, Hosanna. And in John 19, we read, again, the same Greek words, the crowd shouted, crucify him. So I think that the point is being made that it is the same group of people. Now, they welcomed him with palm fronds, and that's... Uh, exactly what happened in the Second Revolt, that's about AD uh, 132, when there was another uh, attempt by the Jews to establish their own kingdom. <clears throat> and uh, they, they put palms on the coins of the, uh, of the Second Revolt. And they, what they're really doing, it, it seems to me, is, <clears throat> is saying that we want the kingdom immediately, right here and and now, and when the Lord didn't do that, 
they became extremely angry and turned round and crucified him. And that, I think, is behind the mockery of him in, in the process of his death. The crown of thorns, the pulling of the mock scepter in his hand, riding over him, this is the king of the Jews. John 12:34. they say, who is this son of man? In other words, what kind of Messiah is this? They understood son of man to be a messianic uh, title from Daniel 7. And they're saying, what's this guy? What kind of Messiah is this? Maxim Gorky, the Russian atheist, said a terrible thing once that in one, at one time was put on the, uh, the headlines of the Soviet newspaper Pravda. There is a God. Uh, but man created God after his own image and his own likeness. And you know, there, there's kind of a truth in that. In other words, people believe in the God or in the Messiah or in the Kingdom of God or whatever that they have in their head, that they want to believe in, rather than the one that is presented in, in the Bible. This whole problem of expectation being dashed and turning to anger, this actually, we should all be... Uh, I've had plenty of experience of this. When I talk to people who are having problems in the first year of their marriage, this is this, well, this just keeps on coming up, this anger with each other. And it's nearly always traceable to false expectations during courtship, that this is my great prince, that she is this, that, and the other. And you know, the, the couple's find that he's not the, uh, the dashing... Uh, wonderful prince, and she's not whatever, whatever, the image of my mother or whatever, uh, unconsciously uh, the guy hoped and expected. She's who she is. And he is not the dashing prince. He's the, uh, the wonderful king, you know, or whatever. He's, uh, he's not the guy that, that you expected. And this very often turns to anger, and we see this all around us. You see it particularly in religious terms, when uh, somebody has a particular uh, idea about somebody, that they think this person has certain positions on this issue and that and the other, and then they find they don't. The adulation or the respect for that person very soon turns to anger. And you, know, you see that so many times. So then they expected a Messiah to come, yes, sitting on a donkey, but then he's going to drive out the Romans, etc., and he's going to give us the kingdom that we wanted. And it wasn't like that. And their, their praise of Jesus, this Hosanna, this save us now, then turned to the anger of crucifying. And I want to suggest that the Lord as the... Uh, the psychologist extraordinaire knew exactly that that was going to happen. And he's doing all this consciously. Almost, you could say, in order to set up his own death. So verse 10, when he was entered into Jerusalem, the people were moved. And that's the word, really, for an earthquake. They were shocked. I wonder why they were so shocked. And they said, who is this? Now, that doesn't mean, oh, Who's this? Never seen this guy before. Jesus was a well-known figure. He'd been in Jerusalem a number of times. He'd done miracles. He'd cured people. 
uh, he had had a lot of airplay from John the Baptist, to whom it said all Jerusalem had gone out, uh, and he prepared them for Jesus. He was well known. So when they say, who is this? They don't mean like, who's this guy? Never seen him before. Who is this? They, what they mean by that is, what kind of a guy is this? What kind of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, preacher, what kind of Messiah is this man? And I think when Pilate says to them, shall I crucify your king, in John 19, and then they all shout out, we don't have a king apart from Caesar. That's a pretty odd thing for people to say, who uh, <clears throat> are Jews, but you can understand it, if the tack I'm taking is correct, that their hopes have been so dashed about Jesus, so dashed, that they, they say, no, no, he, okay, Caesar's better than this guy. And the answer comes in verse 11, when they say, who is this? The prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, they knew that. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think that those things are being said sarcastically. Remember John 7:52, out of Galilee arises no prophet. There, is a, there was a Jewish idea that no prophet came out of Galilee. I forgot that Jonah was from Galilee, but anyway. Um, so to say that oh, this is the prophet from Galilee, I suggest this was said very tongue-in-cheek. Now Nathaniel, one at the beginning of the Gospel story, struggled with the idea that Messiah could come from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, he says? That's in John 1, 46. You remember when Peter is warming himself by the fire, they, uh, the girl says, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew 26, 71, and she mocks him for his Galilean accent, which Jesus apparently also had. So then what they're saying then is that, <laughs> who is this fellow? Yeah, the prophet, ha-ha, from uh, Galilee, out of Galilee arises no prophet, uh, from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And when he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, I wonder if uh, good thing is a technical term there for Messiah, but I'll leave you to, uh, to think about that. So, this was when he entered into Jerusalem, and I think that this change of attitude takes place within about half an hour, probably if you put Luke's record in here, when he bursts into tears. It's so not what they expected. And then he goes into the temple, and again he is parodying their expectations, because their expectation was a Messiah would come, would go into the city, and into the temple. In, in line with their understanding of Malachi 3 verse 1, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. But of course, the, uh, the context of Malachi 3, if only they would have thought it through, well, was, but who may abide the day of his coming? That is, his coming into the temple. And who shall stand when he appears? In other words, he is coming, as he says, to purify the sons of Levi, that this is a coming in judgment. And they had uh, taken it as just a coming to save us from the Romans. They had grabbed hold of a little bit of Malachi 3, the Lord will come to his temple, oh yeah, Messiah's going to enter Jerusalem and then go into the temple. But, yeah, that's like grabbing little bits and pieces of the Bible that fit our, our little story in life, what we want, uh, and that's, that's good, that's enough, and uh, don't bother me with the rest of it. 
Well, that, that's not the way you deal with God, and that's not the way you deal with God's word. Mark 11, 11 says that he comes into the temple, he looks around and he walks out. This was the day of visitation. They expected him to do something dramatic, and he didn't. Now, it's a bit unclear whether he does all what we read here in Matthew 21 in one day, whether he goes out to Bethany and then comes back and, and, and does the cleansing of the temple the next day. But it's certainly presented here in Matthew as if it all uh, happened together. This was his parody, his rip-off, if you like, of their expectation of Messiah gloriously entering the temple. What does he do? He casts out, back in Matthew 21, verse 12, he casts out the sons of the high priest, because the money changers were the sons of Annas, according to Josephus. Now, cast out is a word elsewhere used about uh, condemnation. Just in verse uh, 39 here in Matthew 21, uh, they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard. 22 verse 13 uh, bind the bad servant hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Matthew 25, verse 30. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. So the Lord comes in and condemns these people. He casts them out of God's house. And he throws out those who sold and bought. Now, <clears throat> Zechariah 9, verse 9, you are king comes, humble and sitting on a donkey, but Zechariah 9 verse 8 says, I will encamp for the sake of your house as a garrison that none pass through or return, and no exactor shall pass through them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. Now according to Mark 11 16, at this time the Lord forbade carrying things through the temple, and he looks around. I have seen with mine eyes, Zechariah 9 verse 8 says. Now, <clears throat> earlier, the Lord had spoken about Sodom and Sodom's destruction, and he characterized Sodom, in Luke 17, 28, as a place of buying and selling. That's uh, the only other time when those two words occur together about Sodom. So the Lord is really saying, you are Sodom, and your destruction is, is coming. Now, this is not what they expected. And you'll notice that he throws out not only those who were selling, but those who were buying these people had come to the temple to offer sacrifice, and he's saying, look, business is over. You can't even buy anymore. He chucked out the people who were buying. In other words, he's really saying, look, the, the whole system of offering sacrifice is finished. So instead of entering into the city in glory and into the temple and establishing God's kingdom, he comes and starts uh, alluding to a whole load of, Old Testament scriptures that condemn Israel and he casts them out of the temple. He quotes Isaiah 56 verse 7 that uh, my house should be called the house of prayer but only in Isaiah 56 in verses 10 and 11 what do you read? Israel's elders are blind watchmen, dumb dogs greedy dogs which can never have enough shepherds that don't understand each one looking for gain. Now dogs is language they understood as the Gentiles and the Lord is saying then, that these leaders of Israel are no better than Gentiles, and that they're just the greedy shepherds looking for gain. But, again in Isaiah 56 verse 6, in the context of that verse 7 of Isaiah 56 he's just quoted, 
the sons of the stranger, the Gentile, that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, will take hold of his covenant. Prophecy of, of the Gentiles. Now, did they figure the surrounding context from his quote? He, he makes one quote from Isaiah 56 verse 7, but if you look at verse 6 and then later on in the same chapter, just a few verses, it suddenly speaks with great relevance to the situation. Now, did they get that? I don't know. Maybe some of them did. I don't know. The point is, I think he intended them to, because the, those verses and the context of his quotation are so relevant. Now, sometimes we might think, I'm too tired, there's no point reading the Bible, or I don't, I don't understand this prophecy, or whatever it is, I, I see no point in reading this. Well, I urge you to persevere, because the more familiar you are with the text, then suddenly things jump out at you, and God is trying to teach you bit by bit, day by day, illusion by illusion. And if you're not familiar with the text, and you're not thinking about Scripture, then all this is wasted on you. That's why I do encourage us all to read, even if we don't understand. And in fact, who understands the Bible anyway? I mean, we have an understanding of, of basic issues, but to say, well, there's no point reading if you don't understand, well, in that case, you know, seeing that you're dealing with the words of God and we are mere men, it's almost not worth uh, reading at all. So don't make that an excuse. Persevere uh, and see that God actually is in communication with you. The idea that God has gone incommunicado, that he's out of contact, that he's distant, you don't hear a peep from him. Well, you've got his word in front of you. And he is trying to nudge you all the time through uh, the connection between daily life, life in practice, and what you're reading there. It is written, my house shall be the house of prayer. Now he, he's quoting there, obviously in the same from Isaiah 56, but in Matthew 23, verse 38, the Lord says to them, Your house is left unto you desolate. God's house becomes your house. And in the Old Testament, you read about the feasts of the Lord. But in certainly John's Gospel, you always read about the feasts of the Jews. Passover, a feast of the Jews was near, things like that. In other words, Israel had hijacked God's religion. God's feasts had become the feasts of the Jews. God's house had become the, the uh, house of the Jews, your house. And we've got to be careful we don't do the same, that we don't just uh, use the, the structure, as it were, of God's truth, uh, of his uh, house, as it were, his ecclesia, the, the, uh, the body of Christ, for our own ends, so that effectively it becomes our little social club. And there's plenty of reason to think that that is all that it is for many, for many individuals, that it is just a social club. Because they've hijacked this house of the Lord, the Church of God or whatever, and, and turned it into their little house with their little bylaws and regulations. And he says, well, you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's quoting there from Jeremiah 7 verse 11, which says that, that's what had happened just before the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians because of all the Baal worship that was going on in there. So what the Lord is saying is, you with your sanctimonious, self-righteous legalism, you're just a bunch of Baal worshippers. Now, of course, they would insist they were not Baal worshippers. But 
the other allusion I think he's making is to Zechariah 14 verse 21 that says that in the kingdom of God there will not be traders within the house of the Lord. So what he's saying is, look, let's live the spirit of the future kingdom right now. And incidentally, here in Matthew 21, he, he, the quote is, uh, my house will be called, shall be called, the house of prayer. Luke, in his record, uses the present tense. He says that Jesus said, my house is called the house of prayer. What did Jesus say? I suggest he said both. He said, my house shall be called, and it is called the house of prayer. In other words, he's saying that future prophecy about a future uh, situation in the kingdom of God, you've got to live now. And that's the whole point. We are to be living the spirit of God's kingdom now. It's not, you know, jam tomorrow. It's not good time coming. The essence of that kingdom is to be lived now. And it's in that sense, as John puts it, that you have eternal life. In the sense that we can live the life that we shall eternally live right now. In our lives, the essence of his future kingdom comes. There shouldn't be this uh, huge, as it were, break and divide between human life today and the, the life we shall eternally live tomorrow. We are living the essence of the kingdom life now. This is why you've got all these parables of the kingdom. and They're not talking about a future situation on earth. They're talking about life now. Forgiveness, kindness, and so forth. Uh, in, in this world, that this is the good news of the kingdom right now. Well, the blind and the lame come to him. Now, the Jews understood 2 Samuel 5, verse 8, in the Septuagint anyway, uh, which talks about how the, the lame and the blind uh, were, were, were said to be able to defend Jerusalem against David. Uh, they, they had twisted that to mean that the lame and the blind could not enter the kingdom, uh, the, uh, the temple. And now they come to Jesus, and the kids come. So then he chucks out the, uh, the Jewish religious leaders and the sons of the high priest, who were the money changers, and instead he replaces them with the kids and the cripples. And he's saying, these people are now allowed in this holy place. And as I say, in Mark 11, it says that he said, and you're not allowed to carry things through the temple. What they did, to avoid having to make a long detour of well over a, a kilometer around the temple precincts, they allowed people to carry stuff through the court of the Gentiles. And the Lord says, you can't do that now. In other words, he's saying the court of the Gentiles, which you think you can just carry your stuff through to avoid uh, a long detour around the temple, that is now holy sacred space. And for uh, Israel and Judaism, sacred space was a really important concept. That there is a, a, a literal place in the temple that is literally holy, and you, you, you can mess with that. And now the Lord is saying that, look, that's, the court of the Gentiles is the same. And yes, the kids and the cripples and you don't allow, they are allowed into this uh, sacred space. Well, it took some time, surely, for him to actually physically stop people walking through the court of the Gentiles. And how did one man get away with this? How could he upset the tables of the money changers and physically chuck all these guys out? Quite a lot of them. Really? Could he just do that alone? You know, they had a temple guard under their control. They had 
Jewish soldiers who were specifically there to just ensure that there was no upset and no incident, you know, in the temple. How did he get away with this when they had a temple guard? Well, I can only say that he must have used God's power to just stop them so that they couldn't do anything to him. And it reminds us of that incident in John 8.59 where they take up stones to kill the Lord and he walks through the midst of them and they can't hurt him. Now that was the power of God. And I think what he's showing them ahead of time is that you guys, you soldiers, you guards who are going to arrest me very soon and crucify me, you know what, I've got you absolutely under my control. And of course, that was the case, that he did not... uh, as it were, uh, suffer uh, murder at their hands, as John 10, 17, 18 makes clear. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it. You don't take it from me. I am giving it. So I think this incident in the temple where the very same temple guards, the very same Jewish leadership, uh, etc., who just in a couple of days' time are going to arrest him and kill him, or get him killed, The Lord is showing them, you are absolutely under my control. If I die, it's because I choose to die, not because you take my life from me. They were extremely angry. 15, they were sore displeased. Same word in Luke 13, verse 14, where the ruler of the synagogue was displeased, was very angry, because the Lord did a miracle on the Sabbath day. Is your eye evil because I am good? This is absolutely classic case. They were so angry because the kids and the cripples were allowed into the sacred space. You see exactly that same situation today, when if you open up the Lord's table, and if you allow the people who are considered absolutely uh, unworthy to, to come and break bread there, people will hate you to the point of wanting to kill you. I've seen it. And you know, the Lord says... 16, have you never read that out of, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings you have perfect prose? Of course they'd read. They spent their whole lives poring over the Hebrew text. And the Lord says you never read. And that's again a message to us. You can read the same passage and yet never, never read it in, in, in a sense. So then the Lord's whole action here was a parody as I say, of a triumphal entry. He's trying to get them to see that for him, humility, self-sacrifice, death on the cross, that this is the ultimate, that this is kingship, that this is exaltation in God's eyes. And he was so alone in all this, because we read in John that at this time the disciples did not understand. They didn't understand, and for sure the crowds didn't understand. This is his final appeal to say, look, all that stuff I taught you in the Sermon on the Mount about the the absolute acme of humility, the the pinnacle of humility in its importance, the the basis that that servanthood is true greatness and so forth. He's doing an active parable of this in front of them all, and it's that which led them to crucify him. Now, this is the essence of Christianity. This is the essence of it, of humility of self-sacrifice, of giving ourselves, of losing now so that we might win tomorrow. 
nor of getting a great kingdom for ourselves in this world. And also, the future kingdom of God is on God's terms. You know, there are some people who look forward to the kingdom of God because they, as one brother was telling me, uh, it will just be so great to go around smashing up uh, all, all the, the churches and the mosques and smashing up all the beautiful stained glass windows and blah, blah. And I could feel the bloodlust in this guy's voice. And it reminded me of this whole thing here, that the kingdom of God is not about bloodlust, that, oh, I shall be able to smash people, I shall be able to take out my anger that I feel in a legitimate way. It's not about that. The humble king comes into Jerusalem. What does he do, Zechariah 9? He speaks peace to the Gentiles. Not destruction, not bloodlust, as the Jews wanted. But he speaks peace. And a lot of the talk about, oh, in the kingdom of God, we're going to go around smashing the place up. I tell you, that's a false gospel. That's, that's not the good news of the kingdom of God. That's a bunch of angry men who just... Uh, grabbing a few verses of the Bible, phrases out of context, and say, you know what, it's going to be great, it's going to be a bloodbath, and we're going to get all the bloodlust out of us. Uh, but in any case, all that stuff about the establishment of God's kingdom, that is a fraction, a fraction of eternity. We're not going to be going around smashing the world up forever. And so, I can simply appeal to us to accept the kingdom, which is Peace, peace with God, peace with each other uh, forever. To accept the kingdom of God, the good news about that kingdom, the, the good news of the kingdom which is explained all through the parables and all through the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom, accept that as it is. And not some idea that, uh, oh, I shall be great and I shall finally stamp on the skull of the people next door to me who made my life a misery and the people who upset me and all this sort of stuff. It's not what it's about. It's about, you know, as Paul says, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Not about all that kind of stuff. So, as he returned, verse 18, he hungered. As he returned into the city... He hungered. Now, wait a minute. It's early morning and Jesus is hungry. And he's just been sleeping the night at Martha and Mary's place. You think Martha slipped up? You think she didn't like giving breakfast? No, clearly he was fasting. And I think, as my doctor wife has pointed out, uh, that when the Lord's side is pierced and there flows out blood and water, apparently uh, quite separate, the blood and the water, uh, and no stool is recorded as coming out, uh, this would indicate that he had no stool, in, uh, stool inside him, that he had been fasting uh, for some time. It's beautiful the way the scriptures hang together like this. And the, the critical view, which is that, ah, yeah, well, most of it's okay, but this bit's not inspired. This bit was just Matthew. This bit was just uh, John. This bit was just, uh, you know, somebody else. This is not right. As someone said to me once, what, what note in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, would you like to change? Well, the answer is not one. In other words, it all hangs together. Now, once you take one bit out and chuck this little bit out and that bit out, it all falls apart. The beauty of it is lost. So, he hungered because he'd been fasting. And so he comes to this fig tree, which it's not the time for figs. But he comes because he's so desperate. He will be happy even with Immature figs. Of course, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel. And what he's saying is, even if there was just a little bit of 
spiritual fruit on Israel, I would break my fast and eat it. But there was only leaves going back to, uh, of course, Adam and Eve inadequately covering themselves with, with leaves. So if there had been even the beginnings of spiritual fruit, the Lord would have accepted that. And by the way, just notice that. and Don't be so demanding upon your brethren when you see in them just the beginnings of spiritual fruit. Even if it's not the ideal thing, the Lord would have been happy with that. And he says, may no fruit grow on you forever, right away. Now, what does that mean? Because Israel, we're told, shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit in the Messianic age. Could be the Lord is saying, look, because of how you've treated me, uh, that possibility is now ended. You will not have fruit again on, on a national level, as individuals may be, but not on a national level. It could be that the focus was on you. May no fruit grow on you. In other words, the fruit will now come from the Gentiles, but not from you. Of course, in Luke 21, 29, the Lord says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When there is spiritual fruit on them, then that generation that sees that will see the Lord's return. And I rather think that that is saying that when there is spiritual fruit on Israel, the fig tree, and throughout the Gentile world, that generation will see the Lord's coming. And of course he does single out the fig tree. And I would say that our focus should be upon witnessing to Israel and that even if it's immature fruit, as long as there's some beginnings, that will be the sign that the Lord is coming back soon. And you could argue that the beginnings of baptisms in Israel is the beginning of that immature fruit. Or when he says, may no fruit grow on you forever, that is for the aeon, for the age. He could be saying, yes, there will be fruit on you in the messianic age, but now, in this age, no more. Well, it withered away, and Mark adds, from the roots. That means that the Lord cursed the land around it, the land of Israel. And they marveled, the disciples, in verse 20. They were amazed, and I think uh, that may be because they did perceive that the fig tree was an obvious symbol of Israel, and they're surprised that it withered so soon. Well, the Lord had said, this is going to happen immediately, and they're amazed that it did happen immediately. As if they're saying, well, why don't you give it a bit more time? But you, you remember the other parable that the Lord had told, where he says that he is like the worker who says to the uh, uh, the owner, that's God, uh, don't cut the tree down now. It's three years, but okay, it hasn't uh, brought forth any fruit. Please let me dung it and dig around it, which is the work of the, the lowest servant to dig. To dig, I am ashamed. Um, and to put the dung all around it, this is the work of the lowest servant. He says, I'll do that in case it does bring forth fruit. And now he realizes that it absolutely hasn't. And they're saying, ah, oh, you know, well, we're amazed that it's uh, withered so quickly. In other words, like, well, why didn't you give it a bit longer, Lord? He'd been so patient. And they, you know, they really didn't get it, did they? And yet, who wrote these gospel records? Well, God did, but through people like Matthew, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, through these people who were admitting now in their preaching of the gospels, because 
the Gospels are transcripts of their teaching the Gospel, they're admitting in their own witness how slow they were to get it. And we, we could do with more of that, I think, in our own witness. Now, he, he then goes on to say, if you have faith, 21, if you have faith, you will be able to say to this mountain, and there they are, by the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be removed. You will be able to do this. And uh, incidentally, that word removed, Greek word translated removed, is the same one used in the first cleansing of the temple in, uh, in, in, in John 2.16, about how the Lord says, take these things away, remove all this stuff out of the temple. What he's saying is, what I have done, if you believe, you can also do. You can pick up the mountain, the temple mount, and throw it into the sea, the Gentiles, if you believe. And they struggled with this. They clearly struggled with it. And I think he's saying that if you go out and preach the gospel, you will be giving Israel the opportunity to believe, and if they do not believe, then they will be cast into the sea. This whole uh, system of religiosity that, that has meant so much to you, you can actually cast this to the Gentiles. You can actually condemn it. That's another meaning of cast into the sea. So he's saying, don't marvel at my faith. He's saying, you know, you're marveling that I said that this tree was going to be cursed and it's withered now. You, you can do the same. Don't see me up there on a pedestal uh, as if I'm just performing on a stage in front of you. You can have the same faith as, as I can. Now that's a, a huge challenge to, to all of us. And he says, whatever you, you want, you're going to get. But it, he, he doesn't mean that that's a blank check. I think it's in this context. He's saying that you, know, you also can give Israel the opportunity. You also can take that away from them by the, the meaning and significance of your preaching uh, is such that if they uh, don't accept what you're saying, then they're going to be condemned. And if they do, they shall be saved. They shall be cast into the sea, that is condemned, or the gospel will be taken to the Gentiles, that Mount Zion will go into the Gentile world, into the sea, because of your preaching. We may think that our witness is sort of not significant. We might even see it just merely as a PR exercise for our local church or denomination or whatever. But see the significance, the eternal significance of offering a man a place in God's kingdom that really this has eternal significance. And this is where I think the whole work of preaching and of witness helps us to perceive our own significance. But not for us, the depression that, that arises in so many lives, especially as people get older, that arises from a, a sense of absolute insignificance. That whatever one has achieved in the secular life, ultimately, as you get older and older, seems less and less significant. And yet... The significance of offering people eternal life and having eternal consequence and eternal moment in the, in the lives and the experience of others, that is the ultimate significance. Thank you.